Hi, this is Clayton Ritter. Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. God loves us so much. I pray this message today will help you to discover God's love for you and to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more information about our church, you can visit seashorechurch.com. But right now, let's have a listen to this week's message. The Lord is in the adoption business. He is not a foster parent. He is not the head of a benevolent orphanage. He's a dad. And he wants to adopt. And when he does, he gives us the spirit of sonship or daughterhood. I finally got that word right. And I just believe that the Lord wants to adopt us tonight. That sounds kind of weird. Um, I couldn't get this thought out of my head this week. I was telling Romy about it. She called me about something else, and I spent the next 15 minutes on the phone with her telling her all the stuff that I was all excited about. And then I forgot what she was trying to tell me. And she patiently listened listened to me the whole time. But I actually want to respond to what I feel like the Lord is saying to us tonight. And Emily, you brought that up, and I had the exact same thought. And it actually, what you guys sung tonight flows with what I had prepared that I know the Lord wanted to speak to us tonight. But I think it goes even even further than that. And so I'll, I'll figure out what direction I'm going to take the message tonight. But I just believe the Lord wants us to know that he wants to adopt us and he has adopted us and that we are sons and daughters and when we understand of how much not even just how much but how he sees us it'll change the way that we worship God loves our worship but there's a moment when we're engaging in the worship of the room And then there's a moment when we're engaging in the worship with Dad. And I was thinking about it as we were sitting here worshiping and just thinking, you know, God, if you showed up in this room and I was the only one here, I wouldn't want to just go about going through the the motions of singing my songs to you. But I actually want to engage with you. I want to engage in that conversation with you. Sam, can you help her out? Do you mind? Do you mind helping her out? Thanks. But I want to engage in a conversation with you. Which means when I'm singing and I'm worshiping, I'm actually worshiping him. Does that make sense? No. I'll keep. I'll keep trying until this makes sense. As a son of God, this word invitation that we've been talking about, you mentioned. As a son of God, we get invited into the same love relationship that the father has with his son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the same relationship that God the Father has with His Son, Jesus, is the relationship that He invites us into with Him. So it's not the Father and the Son and all of these little underlings. We are in that same level of relationship. You know, in Galatians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes about our adoption as sons and, and, and kind of what that means. And you understand when I say sons, I mean daughters as well, right? And he says in both of these passages something very interesting that I noticed this week. He said that when we become adopted as sons, we receive the Holy Spirit. In the same way that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up and they heard a loud voice from heaven. It was the voice of the Father over the Son and it said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Do what He says. And then after that, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus like a dove. And then He began His earthly ministry. You see, when Jesus proclaims over us that we are His sons, we receive the same thing. We receive the indwelling deposit of the Holy Spirit that seals our adoption as sons and daughters. When you adopt a child, I'm not exactly sure what the procedure is, but I'm sure there's a form somewhere with a big old rubber stamp that goes, boom, case closed, adopted, whatever it is. For us, that's the Holy Spirit inside of our hearts that testifies to us that we are His sons and His daughters. But here's what the Apostle Paul writes in both Galatians and Romans. He says that Spirit that's in us cries, Abba. Abba. Now that's an interesting word. Because we know that the New Testament was written in Greek. When Paul wrote his letters, they were written in Greek. It was the common writing language of the day. And we know that for most of his Jewish audience, they spoke Hebrew. You would write in Greek and speak in Hebrew. But here, one of the only times we ever see this word in the New Testament, he uses the word Abba, which is neither Greek nor Hebrew. It's Aramaic. And Aramaic is the language of Jesus. Jesus being from Galilee, he didn't speak Hebrew, he didn't speak Greek, he spoke Aramaic. That was the language that when Jesus walked on this earth, it's the language that he used. So when Jesus prays to the Father, what does he call him? Abba. Abba. What Paul is saying is, the Spirit in us intercedes with the Father the same way Jesus does, We don't call Him God. We don't call Him Jehovah. We don't call Him Father. We call Him Daddy just like Jesus calls Him Daddy. Because our adoption as sons and daughters means we walk in the same relationship with the Father that Jesus walked in. Can you see this? Do you understand the gravity of what this means for us? It means that we don't have to follow a list of Ten things to do in order to get God to smile on you. We don't have to figure out, what do I have to do to get God's blessing in my life? We just got to come to the realization that if I have the Holy Spirit in me, it's screaming, Daddy, 
It's telling me and the world, this is a son, this is a daughter in whom I am already well pleased. You can't get God to like you. I'm really sorry. He already does. This little boy right here, my amazing 13-year-old, there's nothing he can do to get me to like him. He's my son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He calls me daddy because he's my son and I'm his father. And that deposit of the Holy Spirit in you and in me cries out to God, you are my papa, my daddy. That's what the word Abba means. It means more like daddy or papa, not oh, father art thou. It's daddy. And Jesus is inviting us into a divine love relationship with yeah, him yeah, yeah. that no human could ever provide for you. That's right. No act of goodness on your part could ever cause you to stop being a son or a daughter. And no sin that you've ever committed or will commit can cause him to look at you any differently. If we can grab hold of this kind of level of relationship, can I tell you, it'll, it'll, it'll change Maybe this doesn't have the same revelation for you as it did for me. I just went, wait a minute, that's Aramaic. We, we call God by the same thing that Jesus called him. And I just believe he's wanting to adopt us. And he's inviting us. That's the word. He's inviting us into this love relationship. So tonight I want to talk about a revival culture. But as I'm just sitting here in worship, I'm going, you know, Lord, I, I sense what you're doing tonight is wanting to show us that a revival culture is a culture of love. And it's this level of loving relationship that you are calling us into. You have not called us to be servants. You've called us friends, but... The Father calls us sons and daughters. And you have invited us into the same level of relationship that you have with your own son. God, help me to get that because there's oftentimes I don't feel it. But you've invited me into that. You know, this culture of revival, we talk about it in Isaiah chapter 61, where it says that, He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's what we're called to be. The spirit of revival is when we are no longer brokenhearted, but it's been been bound. Our heart has been bound to him and we're no longer broken. It's when we're no longer captives and prisoners of religious systems or sin or our own fleshly desires or the opinions of others. We've broken free of that. It means we're not walking in darkness. We don't think we're going one way, but it's actually going the wrong way. We see things as they really are. And then the end of that chapter says, and they, those who used to be brokenhearted, who used to be captives, go back to the places long devastated and renew their cities. That's the revival that God's called us into. But that revival that God's calling us into isn't, hey, you better get your broken heart sorted out. You better make sure that you're no longer a captive. Come on, get up, lead, move, do. He goes, no, no, no. Just respond to my invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just respond. I've already done it. If you would just let me adopt you 
and come into my family, then all of these things are going to come to you. Then you can go and renew cities. And he wants us to respond to this invitation. The culture of revival that's happening here is a culture of love. And I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Guys, thanks for being patient with me back there on the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'd actually like to read this together if we could. I know our screens are a little bit slow on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's going up there really soon. Because I've turned off Pokemon Go in the town center area. I'm just kidding. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. I'm going to read it to you. It's not, there we go. They were just waiting for Dave to get up before they actually... Can we read this together? Is that okay? It's a familiar verse when it comes to weddings, but I think it's good for us here today too. You ready? Everybody say yep. Awesome. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Sorry, you got to read it like a preacher. <laughs> so this culture of revival, I want you to understand, is, is a culture of love. Now, it's important because I want to get to some things that a culture of revival will create in you. See, when you live with this revival, when you understand that I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor, release captives, bind up broken hearts, all that stuff, it means that I can't do things that I used to be able to do. And can I tell you, that is really frustrating for me. There's some things that I used to be able to get away with when I was a Christian who was happy to enjoy my relationship with Jesus, but wasn't really interested in doing anything, that the moment I realized that there's revival that God wants to do in me and revival that God wants to do around me and a plan that he has for our city, I couldn't do stuff that I used to do. There was stuff in my heart and things in my behavior that I could just kind of push to the side and be like, well, you know what? I'm really bearing fruit in these areas, so it's okay because, hey, we're all work in progress, right? So I got a couple things over here that we're just going to put those on a shelf right now. And the Holy Spirit went, no, nothing goes on the shelf. What I want to do in you is complete. I want to transform you completely. Because for you to go back and renew cities and repair places long devastated, it's going to mean a full surrender of your heart. So there was stuff that, you know, before I stepped onto this revival boat of going, okay, God, I want revival to happen in me. I want it to happen around me. I could get away with being angry sometimes. I could get away with a little bit of jealousy and a little bit of strife so long as I learned to manage it, so long as I learned to isolate those feelings of insecurity, I'd be okay. I could still move forward in this area. But the problem is, is I would move forward in the areas that where I've surrendered my heart to Jesus. But those areas that I said, hey, I can have a couple of things that are left kind of surrendered. Every time I'd move forward in these areas, eventually they would come right back in and my life would be not quite as full as I'd hoped it would be or I'd end up in the same place again. I'm like, how is it that I'm in the middle of this revival? Like I am getting words of knowledge and prophetic words and people I'm praying for are being healed, but yet these other three areas of my life are getting worse. 
And you start to develop this split personality of going, I don't know which one's the real me. The one that's pursuing the things of God or the one that when I get home, I'm just buried in doubt and worry and anxiety and all this stuff. And I get to this theological place where I go, well, I guess that's just a part of revival culture is you got stuff that you just got to just gotta learn to live with it. But yet when you step in, the Holy Spirit goes, why are you isolating what I want to eliminate? Right. Why are you living with something that I didn't give you? You see, the culture of revival means that there's no area of my heart that's left unsurrendered to Him. Which is why it's so important for us to know that the culture of revival in the kingdom of God is a culture of love. God is not looking at us and going, here is your my naughty and my nice list. And you have a lot of areas on this. And if you want to see the blessing of God, you better do something to move from the naughty or nice. He doesn't look at us and go, here's all the ways that you're not measuring up. He invites us into a love relationship that's the same relationship that he has with his son. So when we're confronted with areas of our life that aren't quite bearing the fruit that we want to bear, we don't shrink and go, if God sees that, I'm done. But we go, I'm just responding to love. I'm just responding to the invitation that you have. Lord, here I am. Here's every part of my heart. And then he comes in and he washes us white as snow and makes us new again. And then we look back and go, why did I waste so many hours of my life hiding something that God wanted to replace with His love and His presence? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, this goes on three, three uh, verses later from verse 8 where we stopped. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. He said, I used to think like a kid, but I can't think like that anymore. This was right on the back of that whole love scripture that we just read. He's saying, there are some things that as kids you used to get away with. When Jai was a toddler and he would throw his food around the kitchen as he's eating it in his high chair, he kind of got away with it a little bit. He ain't going to get away with that tonight if we go to a restaurant somewhere and he decides to have a food fight. There's some things you could get away with as a toddler you can't get away with now. Well, there's some things as a Christian that I used to be able to get away with that the Holy Spirit goes, that's no good anymore. But it's that love relationship that cultivates revival in my heart. And I think that love just sees things differently. Revival sees things differently. Because... I think our natural tendency is to, to, to find someone or something to blame. This is the reason I am how, who I am. This is the reason I feel the way that I feel. But love doesn't seek to blame. Love seeks to restore. And when you begin to see things through this culture of love, you stop saying who's to blame. Right. And you start asking the question, what's the root cause of this? 
Because love just doesn't deal with the surface issues. It wants to get down to the very root. And the root of the problem is usually revealed in the fruit of your life. Because the fruit reveals the root. So whatever fruit is coming out of whatever area of your life, if it's strife, if it's jealousy, if it's envy, if it's anxiety, stop trying to find a way to deal with the anxiety and find out what the root of that anxiety is. Right, right. And I'm going to share with you how the Lord actually did this with me even just a few weeks ago. Right. Because if we live with surrender in our hearts, it'll change the way that we live. You see, I think often... You don't want to get to the place where you're just constantly looking inward. Oh, Lord, see if there's any unclean way within me. And everything is all, and we pray that prayer, but if everything is inward, but we don't actually go anywhere, like we just sit in church and in the pew and in our prayer closet and, oh, Lord, get every unclean thing out with them, and we don't ever go anywhere, that's not the way God intends for us to live. Because at some point, there's a city that needs to be renewed. But God also isn't sending us out into the world and saying, you got some issues, don't worry about it, just go. Somewhere there's got to be a place where we're made whole and we're going at the same time. So there has to be this process of me being renewed and made whole, but still going out and renewing cities. So the only way this is going to happen is if there's a constant surrender that I'm living with in my heart. In other words, the surrender isn't the one time you raised your hand, came forward in church, gave your heart to Jesus, got a book, and somebody followed you up for the new Christians class. It doesn't end there. That is where the relationship begins. But from that point on, God's called us to live with surrender in our hearts from that point on. That we don't let any area of our life come in and just take control or, or get a little seed in there that refuses to move. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, if you guys have that, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. That that sounds weird. We carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus. That doesn't sound very appealing, does it? We carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus. Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we carry that around? Because the death of Jesus means that my flesh has been crucified. So those areas of my life that try to resurrect themselves, that are not yet redeemed, when I carry the death of Jesus in me, it means that those things in my life that will keep me from the fullness and abundance that God has for me, They find no place. All they see is the death of Christ, which paid the price for me not to have to live with those things in my life. So when I carry the death of Jesus in me, which really translated means when I carry a fully surrendered heart with me all of the time, that when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something in my heart and says, hey, you can't live with this anymore. You can't get away with this anymore. Stop living with this. Stop isolating something that one needs to be eliminated and stop managing something that needs an eviction notice. When the Holy Spirit does it, when we carry around the death of Christ in our body, it means that we live with a surrendered heart. And when those moments come to us, we go, Lord, you love me and I'm responding to what you're putting your finger on and it's gone. And that's when his life flows through us. So we carry death and get life. That sounds weird, doesn't it? 
but we carry his death in our bodies so that his life can flow through us. So the life of Christ in me comes from the death of me in me. Did you catch that? The life of Christ in me comes from the death of me in me. That me, I mean the, the selfish part of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes again, and he says, Don't you know that a little yeast, a little yeast, I knew I wouldn't get that word right. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Don't worry about festival and Passover. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How many of you are bakers in here? Have you actually baked your own bread before? That's impressive. I have not done that. I don't dare do that. I love cooking, but cooking is art. Baking is science. Let's just say I did a little better in art class than I did in science class. You can mess stuff up cooking, and you're like, you know what? A little salt, a little hot sauce will fix everything. You do that in baking, and you're going to end up with a disaster. So I, Bella has really gotten into baking right now, and her and Jai have made some of the most amazing stuff ever. And I'm like, I'll cook dinner. You guys can bake. But when you're baking, what they were trying to get was unleavened bread. That was the goal in mind. Guess what ruins unleavened bread is leavening. Yeast is leavening. So if you're trying to make a cracker, you don't want any yeast that's involved in there. But the simple way to get bread to rise is you chase, just take a little bit of yeast from the old loaf of bread, put it in the new batch of dough, let it sit for a while, and it'll leaven the whole loaf. Because when you put a little bit of yeast into new dough... It grows and it gets into every last piece of that dough and it causes the bread to rise. Now, to me, risen bread sounds a whole lot better than a cracker, but they wanted crackers. Go figure, right? So the only way to keep the bread from rising is to make sure that none of the old yeast gets into the new loaf. So what does this have to do with us? When we enter in this culture of revival, through a culture of love, we suddenly want to become this new creation. We've gone from being led by our flesh, and now we are led by our spirit. The spirit of God is calling the shots in us, not our flesh. The flesh still has a voice, but he's not in the lead. We're being led by our spirit. We are becoming this new loaf of unleavened bread. But the problem is, is often though, we've committed to revival in our hearts. We've surrendered areas of our life. Even the smallest little unsurrendered area in our life, if we don't deal with it when God puts his finger on it, that is the yeast that gets carried into the new loaf. So here's how this outworks in my life. It means, Lord, I've surrendered all of these things to you. Have your way in me. But then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm moving forward in these areas. I told you before, I'm realizing the gifts of the Spirit that God's given me. I'm, I'm prophesying. People are getting saved when I tell them the gospel. They're getting healed. All these things that I'm believing for are happening. But yet when I'm at home, I've got this anger issue that keeps rising up in me. And now all of a sudden we're having disagreements about things that were easily solved before, but now even just simple discussions are turning into arguments. 
And I'm finding myself getting frustrated and irritated. But yet, there's so much fruit over here. But then you'll get to the place where if you don't deal with that, then you'll go out and save millions of people and come home and be miserable. And what saddens me the most is when people start to begin to believe it doesn't matter what happens at home if you're still doing great things for God. And they convince themselves and convince others that that's just a part of what ministry looks like, is to have some parts of miserableness and other parts of great fruit. But if I get to heaven and win tens of millions to Jesus, but end up divorced and estranged from my kids, I would not consider that a success. Right, right. Nor would I consider that that was God's plan from the very beginning. Right, right. I want to make sure that I'm not taking old yeast into my new loaf. He says the old yeast is malice and wickedness. But the new bread is sincerity and truth. That's what he wants us to live with. Sincerity and truth. So I wanted to actually give you an example that happened with me a couple of weeks. I kind of just opened that can of worms a minute ago. But, you know, we, uh, we decided to step into this culture of revival a long time ago. We've committed our lives to it. This isn't a recent thing. But we began to see some pretty incredible fruit from this very early on. When we decided to say, look, we actually want our lives not to be about the production, not to be about the things, but to be about the kingdom. And we're committed to fully surrendering our hearts to him and whatever he wants to do in us, let him do it. We began to see incredible fruit. You all are part of the fruit of that. We began to see others awaken to these gifts. They began to hear God for themselves for the very first time. We also decided to start homeschooling our kids, all three of them, while Romy got her master's degree. And we started a church. What was I thinking? But, you know, it was not long after we started homeschooling all three, got off to a great start. We all were home together. It was awesome. Kids were doing well. And uh, church was going great. We just loved what God was doing. But then a couple of my kids started getting behind in their schoolwork. And then getting really behind in their schoolwork. And I found in me this irritation just growing. that was turning into angry. And I was getting so mad at my kids. I'm not going to say which ones they were. But I was getting so mad because they were getting behind. And I went, you're starting to make some of the same mistakes that you made in public school. And we're ending up in a hole. And if you get in a hole too deep, it's too hard to dig your way out of it. So I started to respond in a way, though there was a correction that was needed. I found myself correcting my kids with words that I couldn't believe were coming out of my mouth. They were not words of encouragement, but they were words of, if you don't do this, you're going to end up being like this. And Romy just looked at me and said, did you hear what you just said? 
And then in that, I found this anger welling up in me, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. And yet I'd come into church, and I wasn't pretending like everything. It wasn't bad. I wasn't abusing my kids, but I noticed something was, you're all like, oh, my gosh, what, how bad is this going to get, you know? Maybe it's still time to catch another service somewhere nearby. And so, no, it wasn't abuse or anything like that, was it? No. Okay. Just confirmation there. Was it? But then I found Romy and I would have conversations about stuff. And like I said, things were becoming arguments that shouldn't have been. And we've learned, we know how to not go to bed on our anger. And we know how to resolve things in a positive manner and reestablish intimacy. But it was happening too often and it was happening too quickly and it was, it was too intense. And I'm just like, what's going on here? And of course, she's to blame. So I'm saying, Lord, would you please show her that I'm the man called to lead in this household? No. Remember, love doesn't assign blame. Love wants to restore. So I found myself going, what is the deal? What is this stuff? And I couldn't figure out why I could have so much incredible breakthrough in these areas, and yet I was struggling here. And so I began to ask God, and I actually read in James chapter 1 verse 19 my dear brothers and sisters take note of this everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires and I went dang so I said God can you help me with this why am I angry? Why do I find anger? Like I'm not yelling and screaming and throwing stuff, but I'm finding I, I have to suppress this thing that's growing in me. And I've, I've got to constantly make this conscious decision to close my mouth, which I'm usually kind of good at. But I don't want to live life having to push down this thing that's rising up. I said, why am I so angry? He said, you're not angry. You're afraid. I went, no, I'm not. It's not easy for guys to be told they're afraid. I said, all right, Lord, what, what is it I'm scared of? He said, you're afraid that if your kids fail, it means that you failed them as a father. Because you think it's your job to instruct them and to train them and to raise them up. And if they begin to make decisions that don't reflect their training, it means that you failed them and you're afraid of failing as a dad. I'm like, oh, really? Couldn't you give me a better discipline strategy for the kids? And so I remember I'm faced with a choice now. I can do two things. I can continue to suppress and hide these feelings, or I can confess and repent. And so I told Romy, I was like, this is what the Lord just showed me. And the first thing she said to me was, don't tell me, go tell the kids. I was like, oh. So I gathered the kids together, and I sat them down. Hope it's okay I told the story, is that all right? You're going to look good at the um, end of this. she said... 
I love you, John. We're almost fully caught up. But I sat these three kids down. I said, kids, dad wants to talk to you. And they all think they're in trouble, right? I said, look, I've been a little too angry with you guys lately. And I've spoken to you in a way that's not good. And you know what I hate that I hear sometimes when I say that? No, it's okay, Dad. We deserve that. And I'm like, ugh. You never deserve to be spoken to in anger by me. I said, I, I got to be honest with you. I've been angry with you because I feel like if you fail this, that I failed you as a father. And that anger was based on that fear. And I want to repent to you. I've already asked God for forgiveness. But I want to repent to you for treating you based upon how I felt in my own heart. Would you forgive me? I think it cost me an ice cream. Is that what it cost me? Your forgiveness? No. They said, yeah, Dad. Yeah, Dad, we can do that. And a funny thing happened. They got themselves up the next morning and started doing schoolwork on their own. And it was Saturday. <laughs> and then I was reminded of this verse. Anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, I wasn't consciously aware that I had this that the root cause of my anger was actually based in fear. I wasn't aware of that. All I knew is I wasn't, my life wasn't producing the things that I wanted it to produce. I saw the fruit of my life, which in this area was anger. And I went, well, that's not a fruit of the spirit. That's a fruit of the flesh. So God, I don't know why I'm angry. But when I didn't know, I went back to the Father because I'm responding to his invitation of love not vindictiveness, and said, God, what's going on? He goes, it's not love, it's fear. And when he said that, he didn't go, ah, oh, you're chicken. He went, hey, son, you're afraid. Would you let me touch that fear in your heart? Would you let me be your father so that you'll know how to be their father? Right, right. And I went, oh, yeah, Abba. That's when he showed me that verse. He said, you know, you can call me. The same thing he calls me. I'm your Abba. I'm not your principal. I'm not your disciplinarian. I'm your Abba. And if you will respond to my invitation of love, then you will have everything you need to succeed as a father. It was at that point that I realized Jesus was going to heal every wound, calm every fear, and bring his peace. And his peace goes down to the very root. It changes me from the inside out, and it will for you too. Because the change that God wants to bring begins with your spirit and then works its way out to the flesh. But if we try to use our flesh to suppress those wrong feelings and thoughts and emotions... 
it'll just carry that yeast into the new loaf. You see, you can't just make a decision not to be angry. You have to let God deal with the root of what's in your heart. When I did, he gave me a couple of revelations on anger that is really not the message, but I'll give them to you anyway because this is just what I learned. The key is I want you to understand I didn't know any of this stuff and learn it until I had first surrendered that area of my heart to him. Number one is to make a decision, only get angry at what God makes God angry. It's a pretty good thought, isn't it? Like I can have anger, but make sure that, and God wasn't mad because maybe John, maybe not, wasn't keeping up with his schoolwork. God doesn't get mad when that guy cut me off on the interstate. God doesn't get mad because I can't fix my stupid bike chain on my bike and I've gone through three different chains trying to fix this thing. All of those things make me mad, but I just realize, you know what? But you're mad that somebody's living under the underpass in my neighborhood and nobody will give that guy food. God gets mad when the brokenhearted father is abusing their son in my neighborhood because he doesn't know the love of the father for him. God gets mad when people are led to places that they shouldn't be by leadership that hasn't learned to resolve the issues in their own hearts. Only get mad at what God gets mad at. Number two, anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. That was the second one. I just mentioned that. And the third thing is that if I awaken to love, anger quickly fades. Yes, yes. Rummy has preached a brilliant message on awakening to love the last couple of weeks. But I realize if I awaken to love, number three, if I awaken to love, then fear won't find a place in my heart. So I just, I wanted to end with this. And I know I've taken a long time. I'm somewhat sorry for that. Anger may not be your yeast, but it was for me. Maybe your yeast is the anxiety or the depression. Maybe your yeast, I actually believe somebody in here tonight, it's a spirit of despair. That's what I felt very strongly in worship, that there is a spirit of despair. But yet Isaiah 61 says he's come to give us the oil of joy that replaces a spirit of despair. Maybe anger is not your yeast. But maybe it's one of those. Maybe it's in the area of generosity. Maybe it's in the area of forgiveness. I don't know what your yeast is. But look at the fruit, because the fruit will reveal the root. If you've got an area of your life that is not bearing the fruit that you want to see, maybe it's time to begin asking God, Hey God, what's the root of this thing? Because He'll show you. But he's showing you, not as a vindictive disciplinarian. He's showing you as a loving father who's invited you into a loving relationship with him. Can we pray? Lord, I just thank you that you're here. And I thank you, Lord, as your word says, that you've called us to bear fruit in every good work, that there's not one area of our life that we're not meant to bear fruit in, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our parenting, in our workplaces. We're meant to bear fruit in every good work. 
And I pray for every person here, Lord God, that we would no longer suppress and hide those things that you are keep trying to bring to the surface. That when we feel things rising up in us that are not what we would want out of our lives, that is the process of revival. It is love that's pushing out the things in us that don't belong so that you can replace them with your presence and who you are. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the power to get rid of the old yeast, that we don't have to keep carrying those things over into the next relationship with you, that we don't have to keep responding at altar call and altar call and altar call, one after the other, just hoping that at some point it'll stick, that there's a process of renewal that happens in us if we'll choose to live with surrender in our hearts, that if we carry around your death in us, we will also flow with your life through us. So, Father, I just give you every area of my heart, me personally to you. And if that's your prayer tonight, if I, I believe that there's some things the Holy Spirit's put his finger on in you. He's revealed your yeast. I don't know any of them, but he does. I don't have to know. He does. Can I just encourage you right now, just where you're sitting, just begin to give that thing to him. Just surrender that area of your heart to him and say, Lord, I surrender this thing to you. Would you help me find the source of where this is coming from? I'll give you a minute just to do it yourself. Thank you, Lord, you speak to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Would you let the oil of joy flow over you tonight? I know there's people here tonight that there's a big jar of oil over your head and it says joy. And if you'll ask... He'll break it open and it'll pour all over you. Just ask. Lord, I want your joy. I want your joy. I want your joy. Your joy comes in the morning. I pray that right now your joy would come. That every morning I wake up, I'm filled with your joy, not the dread of another day, not a spirit of despair of, I can't handle this again one more day. It's the oil of joy. Ask him and he'll pour it out on you tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, give it to him. Respond to the invitation of love tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we bless the work that you're doing in hearts right now. We bless what you're doing in us. There is no place for fear in the life 
of a son and a daughter. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Thank you, Abba. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this, visit seashorechurch.com. And we're more than a podcast. As a prophetic community growing together as the family of God, we have prayer meetings, Bible studies, worship nights, and a Sunday evening service full of the power and the presence of God. And we would love to meet you and your family at any of those. Check it all out on the website, and we'll see you back here next week.